This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on the Friday afternoon before a long weekend. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. It's another big weekend for Hollywood. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, the August jobs report is out today. Joining us on the Village of Bedford Park business line, reminding you to bring your business home, is Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services in Pittsburgh. Gus, thank you for joining us once again today. Another report of solid growth in employment in the month of August, but there are some signs that the jobs engine is slowing down, and that may be welcome news to the Federal Reserve. Uh, That's right. So the U.S. economy added 187,000 jobs in August, uh, but there were big downward revisions to job growth in in June and July. And in fact, if we look over the past three months, the economy's added about 150,000 jobs. So good, solid number, a little bit weaker wage growth, which is good news from an inflation perspective. And so I would expect that the Fed will not raise interest rates when they meet in a a couple of weeks. And then are there any kind of disruptive factors that may have uh, impacted the numbers here. I mean, we still have the ongoing Hollywood strikes and, of course, the trucking company Yellow uh, shut down entirely. Uh, Did that have any effect? Did that weigh down the numbers last month? It did. And in fact, we saw job losses both in uh, movie production and also in in transportation and in warehousing tied to those two particular factors. So absent those, the job market would have been even stronger uh, in August. And and certainly, you know, job growth remains good, just not as strong as it was in 2022 in the beginning of 2023. We're talking to Gus Fauché, chief economist, PNC Financial Services based in Pittsburgh. Uh, When it comes to the soft landing scenario that uh, Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell has been uh, trying to engineer for the last uh, year and a half during the interest rate hiking cycle. What would that look like? And when it is, as far as the jobs market is concerned, is it a, a an employment market that strikes that delicate balance between uh, unspectacular growth and a lack of layoffs? Yeah, so I, I think what uh, that soft landing would look like, it would look like what we're getting now, which is job growth is slowed by about 50% over the course of 2023. Uh, I think that the Fed would like to see job growth of somewhere around 100,000 per month. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting closer. Um, the problem is, is that it's easy to paint a picture where job growth slows further through the rest of 2023, but then we see further softening in the job market and job losses next year. So we're not sure yet if this looks like a soft landing or if it's actually the, the prelude to a recession. 
And then on the uh, wage growth front, it looks like wage growth has outpaced inflation uh, finally, but that also, again, potentially adds fuel to a possible flare-up, that now that uh, uh, people feel like uh, each dollar is staying ahead of the rate of inflation, they're more comfortable spending it. Uh, that, that's right. Consumer spending growth was very strong in July. Uh, we'll see what happens there. But, you know, wages are up about eh, 4.3% over the past year or so. Um, that is not low enough to be consistent with that 2% inflation objective. The Fed would like to see wage growth closer to 3 or 3.5% on a year-over-year basis. So the Fed still wants to see a bit more slack in the labor market and a bit uh, slower wage growth. But if inflation were to slow further, that still means that real after inflation wages would be rising, allowing people to have a higher living standard. Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services, based in Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, Hollywood is experiencing a comeback despite the ongoing actors and writers' strike. Cashing in with conversation, the WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Ticket sales for Taylor Swift, the era's concert film, has reached historic levels while the Hollywood strikes continue. We welcome in Paul DeGarabedian, senior media analyst for the box office tracking company Comscore, based in Los Angeles. Paul, thank you for joining us today. And anything Taylor Swift seems to touch turns to gold. It was only yesterday that uh, Taylor Swift announced that the Eras Tour concert film was going to be released in AMC theaters on Friday, October 13th. And now it's already broken some pre-sale box office records. This is incredible, Rob. For for movie theaters, this was a, a dream that is now realized. I don't think anyone saw this coming. The fact that right in the middle of this era's tour, she's going to have this movie. Taylor Swift is a absolute global phenomenon. And this is not only great for movie theaters, but it's great for the fans. And like you mentioned, you know, with the actor and writer's strike, this just adds a new movie, a new piece of content for theaters in the fall. And in fact, the Exorcist movie moved uh, a week earlier in response to this uh, release date set uh, for the Taylor Swift film. I was going to say uh, there was some talk yesterday that maybe Exorcist Swift would be the next Barbenheimer. Oh, that's, that's but, a good one. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to okay, take, I'm not Paul, I'm not going to take credit for that one. That was uh, that would that, that that hashtag was already floating out there in the ether. But uh, Universal blinked; that. they didn't want to uh, even to tempt fate in that situation. No, because you know, look, this could have blockbuster numbers attached to it. I mean, if you go back and you look at some of the bigger uh, concert films, the Michael Jackson uh, film, Justin Bieber had a film, uh, the Miley Cyrus Hannah Montana film back in 08 opened to 31.1 million in less than a thousand theaters. So this could be a blockbuster debut for this film. And again, we've seen the power of the movie theater to create a cultural phenomenon. Well, now Taylor Swift is bringing her phenomenon to the theater, but it shows they could have gone to streaming, but I think Swift and her team are showing how powerful they think the movie theater is. Just look at Barbie how that created that cultural phenomenon because it was in a movie theater, that Barbie was in the movie theater, just a bigger cultural footprint, more impactful on the zeitgeist and all that goes along with a movie theater release. 
pretty impressive. We're talking to Paul DeGarabedian, senior media analyst with Comscore in Los Angeles. So regardless of people's feelings about the Hollywood strikes, they are going on and they are hitting the movie theater industry as they're trying to recover from the COVID-19 disruptions. And there's only X amount of movies in the pipeline. But the, the Taylor Swift concert movie becoming a big hit, in my mind, seems like a throwback to the 70s and 80s when when uh concert films were part of the regular movie release schedule oh, yeah like the led led zeppelins the song remains the same or stop making sense the talking heads movie uh yeah. even you know martin scorsese's the last waltz about the band which is a absolute classic i mean a, a type of movie that people talk about today is that a potential path for movie theaters going forward that instead of just waiting for the blockbuster to show up yet you, you start doing things like concert films or midnight movies. Uh, Andy Gersher, the producer and I were talking about uh, the 1981 animated classic Heavy Metal which was a a movie you'd show like at 11 o'clock at night or Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of things. That kind of stuff to bring people back into the theater uh, as one-off events as opposed to like waiting for the pipeline to restock. Well, you're, you're talking the right language here because I think that's really important for theaters to get innovative and Rob, you and Andy absolutely correct. I think we could see a return to some of those old-timey movie theater situations. I remember going to see a Creature from the Black Lagoon at midnight, you know, and having uh, a Three Stooges marathon and James Bond marathon, all those kind of things. But I think when you're talking about the concert films, yes. And, you know, Fathom Events and Trafalgar releasing, they've done, you know, BTS, things like that, Coldplay. I mean, these bringing the concert to a movie theater is really great. And with Taylor Swift, I mean, people cannot get tickets to actually go to many of these shows and they're very expensive for the price of a movie ticket. You can see Taylor Swift with fellow Swifties or even the non-initiated in a movie theater. That's huge. And I hope to see more movies like the last waltz and stop making sense. And the films you mentioned, I think it's just great. So getting, you know, sometimes these challenges create innovation and new ways of doing business and uh, new business models. So that can be a good thing that comes out of all this turmoil. Paul DeGarabedian, Senior Media Analyst for the box office tracking company Comscore, based in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up next, a look at the contract fee battle that's blacking out cable coverage of major sporting events, including Monday Night Football. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Money conversation that pays a big dividend. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. With Monday Night Football set to begin soon, millions of charter communications pay TV customers have lost access to Disney-owned networks, including ESPN, over a contract fee dispute. Joining us now with the latest is Tim Hanlon, founder and CEO of the Verter Group. 
Group based in Chicago. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we've seen these carriage disputes before where some channels are blocked out because some owner is in a spat with some cable company over the retransmission fees. But as these um, contracts come up and the economics of pay TV change or changing is almost like by the second, uh, who has all the leverage in this situation? Uh, it's clearly not the consumer, right? Because clearly the consumer is caught in the middle of these uh, of these issues. But uh, as we've talked about before, uh, the reality is that the current business model or the traditional business model of television uh, in the cable era, 1990s onward, uh, is that of a wholesale kind of business where programmers provide their channels in a package or as, as a, a choices to a retailer, in this case, uh, a cable operator, a satellite operator, uh, like a charter uh, in, in cable world, uh, to essentially bundle price and then have the consumer relationship directly to the consumer. That's changing. That's now in an era, the era of streaming becoming much more of a direct-to-consumer business. And that middleman that role that the cable or satellite company has played historically and owning the billing relationship is evaporating. Um, and, the, and part of that process, part of that painful shift is, is consumers, is the consumer re- recognizing that uh, perhaps I don't need to pay a full bundled price anymore when increasingly I have the ability to find things on a more uh, specific or separate or uh, on-demand or monthly kind of basis via streaming services. And that's kind of the squeeze that consumers are caught in in these kinds of spats. So nobody has any leverage on, on anybody. Everybody's all collapsing together. Well, it seems like if you're ESPN and the other Disney-owned properties, you want to make sure that the carriage fees that you are getting are similar or close to what you are getting right now. You don't want to give that up. At the same time, though, if you're the cable company, uh, maybe you don't necessarily need uh, <laughs> you, you you don't necessarily you know need the cable channels anymore because you're still making money uh, via streaming via customers who are just paying for a for for a cable modem or and broadband. Correct. So I mean, it's it's a balancing act, right? It's clearly a balancing act, and programmers recognize that the traditional wholesale model we just described of television is waning and consumers are uh, now empowered to go directly to their programmers that they want and stream it to themselves. And uh, the reality is that uh, that those programmers have to lightly and gently uh, decrease the traditional television revenue stream and then augment with streaming. And the reality, of course, is that streaming is by no means nearly as uh, remunerative as the traditional linear television model. And if you're a sports fan, you know, that's even a, a pricklier uh, situation because the majority of live sports is still very much bundled in that live linear television model. And that's, you know, ESPN is a very outlying force in all of this. Tim Hanlon, founder and CEO of the Vertera Group based in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Still ahead in Entrepreneur Friday, we'll introduce you to the co-owner of a restaurant providing Cuban cuisine in Chicago. <laughs> This is Chicago's News Traffic and Weather Station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. 
Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. This Labor Day weekend is expected to be a busy time for travel. The driver of a shuttle bus at O'Hare remains in the hospital after a crash this morning at O'Hare's International Terminal. It's Entrepreneur Friday. We'll introduce you to a Chicago restaurant offering delicious, fresh Cuban specialties. Plus, we'll look at what companies are doing to provide AI training for their employees. WBBM Business, the markets are mixed right now. The Dow is up 50 points. The NASDAQ is down 25. The S&P 500 is up 1. 77 degrees right now at O'Hare under mostly sunny skies going up to 86 today. Cooler along the lakefront. It's 1231. And topping our news at the half hour, more than 148 million Americans are expected to travel during this Labor Day weekend. WSB reporter Michelle Wright has more from Atlanta. Many of them at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport over the next six days explains the TSA's Robert Spindon. The Transportation Security Administration expects to screen almost 450,000 passengers here in Atlanta during the Labor Day weekend. The airport's assistant general manager, Jordan Begler, says today is going to be the busiest travel day, followed by Monday. 330,000 passengers, and Monday, September 4th, with over 300,000 passengers. He also says all public-facing construction is suspended for the holiday weekend. Michelle Wright for CBS News Atlanta. The driver of a shuttle bus at O'Hare remains hospitalized in critical condition after the bus crashed around 2.30 this morning. Fire department officials say it happened on the ramp at Terminal 5 when the bus apparently struck a median. The driver, reported to be a man in his 80s, was thrown from the vehicle and the bus experienced heavy damage to its front end. The investigation continues to determine the cause of the crash. It's 12.32 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are mixed on this Friday afternoon. Joining us now on the Village of Bedford Park business line, reminding you to bring your business home is J.J. Kinahan, CEO of IG North America and president of Tasty Trade in Chicago. J.J., thank you for joining us today. How are the markets reacting to this August jobs report? Well, I, I don't think today's pattern is completely a surprise. We saw, you know, the big move up at the beginning of the day right after the jobs report came out, sold off a bit. And now I would tell you it's holiday Friday afternoon trading. A lot of people have headed for the exits, if you will. I would expect volume to be slow for the rest of the day. But also, uh, I think there's a little bit of a mixed message in the jobs report itself that folks are trying to figure out going forward in terms of what it means for the inflationary pressures. It seems like uh, traders are starting to price in the fact that the Fed is going to pause uh, hiking interest rates uh, at their next meeting, that uh, the signs of a soft landing are there, and that there are some risks to the economy right now. Uh, it, it, it does seem that way, but I think one thing that maybe has people have gotten wrong over the last year, and that is Chairman Powell has not really wavered when he says what he's going to do. He does it. And I thought that at Jackson Hole speech last week, he still left the uh, or he still left the impression, in my opinion, that two percent inflation was very much something he was not resting until we got to. Uh, I think there, there, there could be some argument given the wage growth in today's jobs report. And given the fact that we did see less uh, people, you know, with the third month in a row of less than 200,000 people employed, that some of that pressure is easing, perhaps. But, uh, you know, you're not necessarily seeing the same thing in housing prices and rents. 
So I think he needs to see perhaps a little bit more evidence. And don't forget the biggest inflationary pressure comes from crude oil, and we've seen crude oil move up pretty significantly over the last couple of weeks. We're talking to J.J. Kinahan, CEO of IG North America and president of Tasty Trade in Chicago on the Noon Business Hour. Uh, One perspective that uh, has been said over and over again is that uh, the economy is still powering through despite the fact that interest rates have uh, been hiked by about five percentage points over the past year and a half. But a very interesting point that I saw this morning, and that is we haven't really seen yet fully the impact of the interest rate hikes in that a lot of people are still floating along on debt that was issued at much more favorable interest rates three or four years ago, that people managed to lock in interest rates of 2% or 3%. And when it comes time to refinance that or take out more debt at a much higher interest rate, that's when we're going to see the impact of hiking on the economy. I think I agree 100% with that, and I think where you're really going to see that play itself out could be from now through the right through the holiday, and more particularly after the holiday season. And the reason I say that is we're also, uh, I you know, we saw that we have the greatest credit card debt that we've ever had. Well, you and I both know that the credit card rates are certainly, you know, eight percent would be an absolute gift, which people are getting on mortgages right now for a credit card rate. So you combine that with the fact that student loans are now having to be repaid also, rent prices continue to increase, and I think we're setting up for, if not by the holiday season, right after the holiday season when those credit card debts uh, you know, come through in the billings, et cetera, that that is a time that does make me very nervous for exactly the reasons you're pointing out. At the same time, you do have, at least in the in the latest employment report, uh, signs that wage growth is running faster than the rate of inflation, that uh, you, 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 the consumer's buying power is uh, increasing ever so slightly. Uh, if you're the Fed, how do you interpret that? Um, I, I agree with that, but I would also say that we will have to see if that wage growth can continue. We have seen some layoffs over the last few months in higher uh, paying jobs, particularly some of the technology sector for the first time in quite a while. That just like as you talked about with interest rates a moment ago, having to work its way through the system, you know, those layoffs, you don't see those effects normally until three to six months later as people's severance packages run out. So, uh, I'm not fully convinced that we can continue with this wage growth when I look around and start to see some of that. J.J. Kinahan, CEO of IG North America and president of Tasty Trade in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next on Entrepreneur Friday, we'll get a taste of Cuban cuisine offered by a Chicago restaurant. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Entrepreneur Friday, and we welcome in Mima's Taste of Cuba, which offers fresh Cuban food at its location in Chicago's Irving Park neighborhood. Let's say hello to Billy Alvarez, co-owner of Mima's Taste of Cuba, 2925 West Irving Park. It's on Irving, just west of California in the Irving Park neighborhood of Chicago. Billy, thank you for joining us today. And you have been in the Cuban restaurant game for quite a long time. You've had locations in various places around the Chicago area. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. So we started, uh, the journey started in Lincolnwood. Uh, right on Tui and Crawford, we were there about maybe nine, ten years, 
And we currently moved to the 2925 Irving Park location about five years ago, 2019, right before COVID hit. Uh, so you can imagine the stuff we had to deal with, you know, with being in the uh, in the restaurant business. But um, can't complain. We uh, we like the move we made over here, and um, you know we're still at it. And no uh, business, but we're still at it. I was going to say on top of that too. On top of the, uh, the the taste of Cuba that, as you said, began in Lincolnwood and has now moved into the north side of Chicago. Uh, you and your wife uh, also own uh, Cuba Three One Two, which is in Roscoe Village. Correct. Yes, we do have. Uh, we own Cuba Three One Two over there at Cuba Three One Two. We're in a, we have a partnership there. Uh, taste uh, Mima Taste of Cuba. It's just me and my wife. So just want to make you know make that clear for the uh, listeners that. Cuba 312 is owned by us, but there's a partnership there. Now, you are of uh, Puerto Rican and Cuban descent. Are you uh, a native of the Chicago area, or are, are, are did, did you come over? No, I was so born and raised here in Chicago, Illinois. I uh, grew up on the north side of Chicago, uh, graduated from Gordon Tech High School, which is no longer here. It's uh, DePaul College Prep now. Uh, my father's from Cuba. My mom's from Puerto Rico. And, uh, yeah, born and raised here in the uh, wonderful city of Chicago. Yeah, I say, Billy, uh, I went to St. Ignatius, and uh, we used to get smoked by Gordon Tech uh, back in the day. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still, it's very strange to me. I know they, they changed the name to DePaul College Prep, but it's, it's, it's when I go down uh, Addison to California, in my mind, it'll always be Gordon Tech, Billy. So uh, <laughs> I, I, feel the, I feel the same way. So that's, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I was going to say, uh, the accent uh, gives it away. Uh, over by Dare, I, I, I should have figured you're from, you're, you're, you're a Chicago native. So what got you into the restaurant industry? What was it about Cuban food that you liked so much that you actually wanted to cook it yourself and sell it? Uh, so, you know, long story short, you know, Cubans are big, big on food, big in the kitchen. Um, you know, my mom, my mom worked full time. My father worked full time. So, you know, I was kind of raised by my grandma and my grandma you know, for whatever reason, would always find herself in the kitchen. And she, if it's just two people in the house, she would cook a, a five-course meal as if we were feeding the whole neighborhood. So she was always in the kitchen cooking. And, you know, I've always, always seen that when I was growing up. And I guess that's where, you know, the interest came from. Uh, fast forward, get married with Jamie. She's a foodie. So now you're, you know, I'm combining my family that loves cooking my wife now is a foodie, so it just worked out perfectly where, you know, she loves cooking. Uh, we went down to Miami a few times. My uh, Cuban family out in Miami, you know, gave her some recipes that have been in the family for over 40, 50 years. And, you know, we came back to Chicago and we're like, you know what, let's 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 open a Cuban restaurant. There's really not too many in the city, uh, but you know, we didn't even open in Chicago the first time. You know, our first location was in Lincolnwood. Uh, she worked at a Krav Maga uh, karate facility right there. And right next door, there was a little tiny storefront available. And we decided to take a shot. We didn't have that much money put away. Uh, whatever money we had put away, we pretty much invested it in the, uh, that little storefront. And that was our first Cuban restaurant. And I cannot stress this enough. The first couple of years were very, very, very rough, very tough. Um, you know, as you can imagine, just starting a business from the ground up. And uh, I'll never forget those days because, in my opinion, you know, you got to start somewhere and work your way up. Fast forward 15 years, 
Now we have a beautiful, you know, restaurant here on 2925 West Irving Park. Does really well. And, you know, we're still here. We're still operating. We, you know, I, we, we strap on our boots every day and we go at it. So I just have, you know, wonderful respect for all the small businesses, you know, especially your mom and pop shops that don't get that recognition. Um, like to thank you guys again for having me on. But that's pretty much how it started. Well, as I say, Billy, uh, very quickly, uh, not only have your efforts paid off, uh, they've received a pretty uh, decent endorsement uh, because you're on Irving, you're not too far away from Wrigley Field, and a couple of Cubs players have come in and uh, and 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 say they like your stuff. So what, that's got to be a great feeling, especially as a Northsider. Yeah, I'm, so I, I was. My father's a huge Cubs fan. I grew up watching the Cubs. I would sneak away from school sometimes, jump on the Addison bus, go right to Wrigley Field, go watch the Cubbies back in the day when they were losing 100 games a season. And fast forward, here we are. I'm good friends with many of the guys on the team, and they come to Mima's almost after every day game. They'll come hang out, eat. And, it, you know, it feels like it's, a, it's something – for them it feels like it's something, you know, a home away from home. And, you know, I'm very grateful they – They've helped me out tremendously, and like I said, we've developed some really good uh, friendships with those guys, and, um, you know, I couldn't ask for more. Billy Alvarez, co-owner of Mima's Taste of Cuba. It's on Irving Park, just west of California, on the north side of Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Still to come, we'll look at the expansion of AI in the workplace. Conversation that's on the money. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Workplaces filled with artificial intelligence are closer to becoming reality, making it essential that workers know how to use it. Here to tell us about what companies are doing to offer AI chat box training to their employees is Rick Cobb, founder of the workplace consulting firm Two Discern, based in Chicago. Rick, thank you for joining us today. It seems like this is the type of workplace practice that can not only help employees understand how to use AI and make them more productive, but it also demystifies the technology. It, it does, but that's a little bit like saying that having a car makes it easier to do things. You still have to know how to operate it. And so I think it, there's a lot of great access to technology and a lot of things that you can do with chat, GPT, and other generative software. But if you don't know how to operate it, then you got a really cool table saw and you don't know whether you're using balsa wood or how to cut a straight line. So what, what does that mean for workplaces that need to uh, train their employees and how to use this? I mean, it, it seems like the sure. people who are trying to set up the training programs also have to know what to do before they pass that knowledge along. Yeah, they do. And there's so much that can be done. You have to narrow it down to what the person's function is and what sorts of things they would benefit from in terms of access. So if, if I'm a copywriter, uh, or I have a responsibility for uh, public relations for a company, then I'm going to want to be able to take speech to text. I'm going to want to be able to do specific sorts of research on areas, but I can tell that software to take time. If I do a quick search, my search might give me an answer that takes 30 seconds, but it's really sourcing from the very top, you know, half a percent of the information and the answer may not be valid i can also say to it dig deep i can also say dig very specifically into an area so there's so many things that you can do to point the software towards what would help but it doesn't matter if 
I, I have access to microbiology and I'm a copywriter or an accountant. I, I'm, I'm not going to use it and it's not important for me to know anything about it. We're talking to Rick Cobb, founder of the workplace consulting firm to discern in Chicago. Is this going to be the biggest workplace challenge going forward is trying to find the vendor or the uh, 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 training company that can get employees up to speed? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, if it, my father always said, if it, if it doesn't make sense, it's either money or love. I think money's going to make a big difference here. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of people that are going to take advantage of, uh, my, yours and my insecurity about this tool. I don't think it's going to be as hard as someone could make it. I think there's a lot of opportunities to bill people for services that they could probably get, pick up internally with their own people. Um, it's certainly going to make a huge difference. I think what is critical for us all to remember is a couple of things. One, the, the systems and access to this, there is no ethics or morals or values built into software. So if it's lying to you, it doesn't know it's lying. Uh, that's one of the things. And, and I think the other thing is, is that it doesn't replace what we want to do with each other in society and in businesses in terms of how we make agreements and how we work with each other. So it's a better, it's much more effective as a supplement to somebody who has a responsibility as opposed to a replacement of somebody's job, uh, except uh, something that's just super robotic to begin with. Rick Cobb, founder of the workplace consulting firm to discern in Chicago.